wonderful time. Good morning, Redeemer. This morning when um, Glenn gathered the worship team for prayer, uh, he prayed. Do you all ever wonder what we're doing over there? You know, we're, we're, uh, you know, a little gathering over there. The worship team, you know, normally you'd go in the back room somewhere, right? Well, we don't really have back rooms here, so uh, we're doing everything out in the open. And, and, and as Glenn was praying, he, he prayed about the wars and the pressures that you face as you come in here. We're, we're greatly aware that there is a battle, that there's pressure, that there's challenges that press in on us from every place. And uh, we want you to know that this is a time to come together and affirm the truths of the living God together. Amen? This is important. In fact, when, when your faith comes under pressure, how do you respond? What do you do? Now, most people, I, I think, when they think about challenges to faith, think about doubt. And in many ways, that makes sense. Doubt seems to be the opposite of faith. Doubters live with what they see. People of faith live with what they can't, supposedly. Some of the disciples were like that, even Thomas, who said he wouldn't believe in Jesus unless he saw the scars on his hands and feet. Of course, once he did, he ended up taking the gospel off to parts unknown, India, dying there for the truth of the gospel. He ended up being a person of faith. And I, I, think, I think there are bigger challenges, actually, to faith than doubt. The Apostle Paul was clear in Romans chapter 12 where he said that the pressures of the world squeeze us into a mold, the world's mold. That worldly view conforms us to its ways. And in some ways opposes being conformed to the ways of God. Another way to look at it is that the world's views squeeze you into a mold and oppose God's views of who you should be or what you should do. Now these pressures come to us in myriad forms. There's the challenge that comes from just natural life changes. There's the challenge that comes from living in a corrupt and fallen world. Both externally, external pressures that we face, or internal pressures of old patterns of sin. There are other challenges to our faith, more sinister, satanic even, that come as direct attacks on our faith, direct threats. You can face, uh, think of the pressures some face in schools who uh, have administrators that say to students that they'll be exposed expelled simply for having a Bible study or talking about your faith openly and honestly on the job with Muslim friends. You know, there's countries close to us right now that would have you jailed or even killed for practicing your faith, for doing baptisms like we're doing tonight. It's not just here in the Middle East. Right now, in a number of Western nations, there are Christian pastors who face jail time for simply speaking out about the homosexual lifestyle. 
Now, in reality, all challenges are satanic attacks. I mean, Satan is just as pleased if you keep quiet about your faith because you're busy at your job just as much as he is if you keep quiet because you have direct threats on your faith. The bottom line reason that there is such vigorous opposition is because of the one we follow. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. In John 15. They were jealous of my position. They were angry that I called them down on sin. They were upset that I didn't follow their social codes. They were threatened that I followed God above all. So they hated me. And now know this. I called you to act the same way I act. No servant is greater than his master. No teacher is, uh, no student is greater than his teacher, right? So you, you do that. And so, by the way, they're going to hate you. Becky Pippert imagines Jesus going to a rotary club for businessmen. A couple of businessmen, a couple of members of parliament, a couple of U.S. senators, maybe a shake or two from the palace, respected religious leaders. He leans over the pulpit. You know what you guys remind me of? Whitewashed tombs. You look great on the inside, but uh, on the outside, but on the inside, you're just dead men's bones. Didn't win him any points. <laughs> In fact, the Pharisees plotted to kill him on the Sabbath. They worked on the Sabbath to kill. And the point for us is we've been warned. So I ask, I ask again, how do we face the challenges to faith? Do you hide? Become a monk? Do you develop the double life? You have... Christian fellowship and friends over here, and secular jobs and work over there. Maybe you give in, justify. Surely Jesus didn't mean that I was to. Are you pressed into the world's mold? And over time, incrementally, become indistinguishable from the world. Perhaps we just abandon God altogether. In our text this morning, we're looking at a man who knew these kinds of challenges. Let's look at this text, Daniel chapter 6. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Daniel chapter 6. And there are three things I'd like to point out about Daniel, three things that I want you to notice about him. Number one, how Daniel faces changed. Change. How Daniel faces change. He was kidnapped to Babylon from Israel when he was young. But in Daniel 6, he's old, perhaps 80 years. He's a prophet, the stuff of legend in his own time. He was well known. He works for the king. But change has come. The Persian conquest of the Babylonian Empire has brought a regime change. So there is a new government in a new country. Iran has taken over Iraq. That means a lot for us, doesn't it? Darius is a new and different kind of king in verse 1. Daniel is given a new and different kind of job governing the finances in verse 2. 
He has new and different colleagues in verse 3. There's no mention of his old friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're dead or gone. These colleagues are jealous, conniving. Sounds like Dubai. After all, the one constant in Dubai is change. Change of leadership, finances, colleagues. Change of jobs, fortunes, housing. Change of rules, shops, and even roads. (laughs) Everything changes. But God is unchanging. He's the same God today as He was in Daniel's time 2,500 years ago. And Daniel knew that. He's not tempted to quit or give in or rest on his past accomplishments. The response of Daniel is not to hide from change or forget God, but to press into faithfulness. He's not distracted or angry. He's not sullen or depressed. He works for God. He knows that his work is worship. He's faithful in the midst of the challenge of change. Secondly, Daniel's faithfulness invites persecution. Daniel's faithful work makes his co-workers look bad. They're not concerned about the task at hand, but rather their own gain in verse 4. We see their jealousy turn to corruption when they use their position of power to harm a good man by making unjust laws for a judicial murder. The murder of a man who has done no wrong in verse 5. But Daniel does not give up. He does not develop the double life. Oh, it's so easy, isn't it, to develop the double life? He does not try to wiggle out of this difficult problem. He's not justifying his situation. He's not living differently than who he is alone. And give in. Everybody's doing it, right? (laughs) Daniel is not a people pleaser. In other words, he's not pressed into the mold of the world. He resists both the external and internal pressure. He is faithful. His aim is to please God. Number three, Daniel faces personal challenges to his faith with faith. More faith. Now, don't don't miss the irony here. That because his co-workers know that he's faithful... They make up a law specifically designed to catch him being faithful so they can kill him. In verse 6 through 9. And it's interesting to note in verse 10, when Daniel hears about the edict from the king not to pray, he prays. That's his response. It's as if the edict from the king is Daniel's call to prayer. So it's, don't pray, let's go pray. It's almost a trigger for him. Notice how Daniel does not give in to fear. Don't give in to fear. It's the great crippler of faith. Lions are scary, but God is more frightening. You should fear God, not man. How easy would it have been for Daniel just to close the curtains? (laughs) Right? So no one could see him. No one see what he does. There's, There's so many ways to compromise faith. 
But if you spend your life in moral compromise, what hope do you have for deliverance? You can't live a double life. No matter how good the reason, no matter how strong you fear. We meet the challenge of our faith by more faith and prayer. We press into God, not move away. So Daniel is an amazing man. He faces these challenges to his faith of change, corruption, and outright threats. It's a wonderful example of faith. But those of you who have been coming to this series about Jesus in the Old Testament know, I've been careful to point out the images of Jesus over the course of the series on Jesus in the Old Testament. That's because if we are not careful, stay with me on this, if we are not careful, we reduce the Bible to kind of a, a, merely a book of examples on how to live a better moral life, how to improve our lives. Not a book that calls us to live in faith for the gospel. So, so we reduce the Bible to being stories, Aesop's fables of moral points. So that the big point of Abraham is that we just live sacrificial faith. Or that we wrestle with God like Jacob. Or that we need to be sexually pure like Joseph, right? As we've looked at those passages. Rather than the truth of those passages. Which is, we're not Abraham at all. We're Isaac. We're bound on the altar under the wrath of God with nothing that we can do for ourselves in need of the substitute sacrificial lamb. We're the deceiver Jacob who needs to face up to his sin. We're the brothers of Joseph. Not Joseph. We're the brothers of Joseph who appeal for their salvation to the very one that they have murdered themselves. Same is true of Daniel here. How many sermons have been preached in the, in the world called Dare to be a Daniel? I, I can give you the titles to these sermons. Dare to be a Daniel. Create a Daniel generation. Right? I mean, I, it's, and of course he's a stellar example. He's relevant for us in Dubai. He's relevant as we face change and corruption and pressure not to share our faith. Is he a great example? Does he inspire us to greater faithfulness? Of course he does. Is that what this story is about? Does this story really point us to that? Is Daniel a story for us to be more moral in the face of challenges? Should we see ourselves as Daniel? Not so much. I mean, it's there. But what we need is to see how this passage points us to Jesus, not us. Do you see, do you see Jesus in the story? Do you see how it's an image of Christ? A foreshadowing of Jesus, the Son of Man. That Daniel 6 is a story about one of the most perfect men in the Old Testament. Daniel is at the end of his life. His zeal for God is what got him in trouble. He's accused unjustly in a kangaroo court on trumped up charges in verse 13. He's convicted by a corrupt government and a weak king in verses 14 and 15. He's given for dead, buried in the ground. The stone is rolled over to close him in in verses 16 and 17. Early the next morning, those who care about him go to his 
tomb in verse 18. The stone is rolled away. Daniel rises from this tomb of death miraculously alive in verses 19 and 21. Daniel says that he has been found innocent in God's sight, verse 22. He comes up from the grave alive with words of truth in verse 23. Those who oppose Daniel are judged in verse 24. And this miracle, this resurrection, results in an edict from the king which goes to all nations. All nations. That they should believe in the God of Daniel in verse 25. This edict is a thing of repentance for Darius, the king who called himself God. Who now sees that it's actually the God of Daniel who will reign and live forever and ever in verse 26. Darius, who once thought of himself as God, now says that Daniel's God rescues that Daniel's God saves his people. Verse 27. Who is that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You could say it. It's Jesus. It's not us. Do you know who we are here? Who are we? Are we the redeemers of the world? No. If we're anyone... In this story, we're the corrupt officials. (laughs) Or King Darius himself. It's not dare to be Daniel. It's not dare to create a Daniel generation. If anything, it's dare to see yourself as Darius, the king who would be God. This God wannabe who gave the blameless one over to death. That's us. Because we set ourselves up as God. Apart from Christ, our desire is to run our lives the way we want. So when Jesus tells us truth about ourselves, what we want to do is kill Him. You say to me, I wouldn't kill anyone. No, if you were there, if you had been there at the trial of Jesus, you would have screamed for His blood like the crowd. Or left Him to His death alone like Peter, or betrayed him like Judas, or like Pilate, with full self-loathing like Darius, full of self-loathing and weakness, you would have given him over to death. You and I would have given the Holy One to death. That's because we judge Jesus by the worldly standards, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But it's at precisely... At this point, precisely when we see how deep our sin runs, that there is good news. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 It's not that you need to get your life in good shape or good order so that God will take you in. It's infinitely better. Despite your sin and wickedness, you can be forgiven and loved as a child of God. Not by your own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ purchased on the cross. His righteousness appropriated to you through simple faith in what Jesus has done for us. His righteousness that comes to us not by works of the law, 
but by the grace and love of God through simple faith in what Jesus had done on the cross. Listen, Daniel was saved by his faith. You think the lions cared how much of a good worker he was? So the message of the Christian for the world is that we trust Jesus in faith for our deliverance. Not our own ability to be morally good. It's through faith in Christ that our sins have been placed on the cross for all who would repent and believe in Jesus as the Son of God. The answer to how we face the pressures of the world, first and foremost, is to ask, not how do I get better? How do I live a better life? What rules do I need to follow? It's first to ask the question, is is my life in line with the gospel? Is my life in line with this message of faith? The message of the good news, that a holy God will accept and love sinners as his own children if they will but repent and believe in Him. So under pressure, when the world presses in on you, we press in to the gospel. We press into the cross, into faith, not away from it. We move to what Christ has done. The temptation is to try quickly to run to rules, right? We all know that. Or take right action in our own strength to kind of dig deep, right? It's what the world tells you. Dig deep. Try harder. Use your own strength. Without ever setting faith first in our lives. And we get in all kinds of messes when we do that. When we operate in our own power in the spiritual realm. You don't have the power to do anything in the spiritual realm. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not 90%, not 80%, not 10%. Nothing apart from me. And when we try, we're in a whole heap of mess. You see, you see Paul correcting this kind of thinking throughout the epistles. So there's, there's some problem in the church. Paul was usually writing to correct some problem in the church. Where does he start? He doesn't start by saying, do this, do that, do this, right? No, he starts with the gospel. His assumption is always that if people are in some kind of mess, some kind of ethical problem, some kind of moral dilemma in their lives, they've not really understood the gospel. They've not gotten the gospel. So the the, the point is, we need to do the same. If you face some ethical decision at work, or your marriage is in meltdown, or you're fearful of facing some penalty for boldly sharing your faith, you need to go back to the gospel. You need to go back to that message and ask yourself, do I really believe this stuff? You press into the gospel. You look for ways that you have misunderstood the cross of Christ. And let me say, with, with great sincerity and, and a deep heart for you, if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that you don't start with works, but we start with faith in, in the gospel and the grace of God, there's a good chance you're not a Christian. You might have prayed a prayer when you were little or you know, kind of lived a good moral life or gone to church. But you see, if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't understand the grace of God found in Christ Jesus for what He's done on the cross, that our sins were placed on Him, that His righteousness is put in us through faith in what He's done, simple, childlike faith in Jesus and what He's done, asking Him to take your life, then 
you're missing the heart of the Christian message. Now, commonly, Daniel is divided this way. The first six chapters are biographical, about the the life of Daniel. The last six chapters, 7 through 12, are prophetic chapters. And um, I'm sure that's true. People much smarter than me say that all the time. But look what happens after this foreshadowing of the resurrection and the proclamation among the nations of salvation and rescue in chapter 6 when we look at chapter 7. Turn to Daniel 7, verse 9. I'm just going to read a couple verses. Okay, this is directly after. Now, this is not chronological. Okay? This happened in another time. Daniel 6 is the, at the end of Daniel's life. Daniel 7 happened previously. But they come together, I think, for a reason. Daniel 7, verse 9. Daniel has a vision. He's known for his visions. They're very, they're very amazing. You know, people write books of charts and all these convoluted things about Daniel. It's amazing. Uh, I, I don't understand them. <laughs> uh, but I understand this. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God. Okay, so you get the picture? The thrones are set in place and the Ancient of Days sits down. His clothing was white as snow. His hair of his head was white as wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated. The book was opened. Skipping to verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and before there before me was the one like the Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that never will be destroyed. Now the Son of Man, of course, is the designation that Jesus most often used for Himself. And it comes from this passage, this very passage. This passage sounds a lot like a book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the last book, the book of the end times, the book of the judgment. And the reason that they sound the same is because it's the same event. The reason that it comes in the book of Daniel at this point, as I said, is because you've had this history, this foreshadowing, this future picture of Jesus. That the perfect one was killed, raised from the dead, proclaimed in all the world so that one day, one day, he would stand before the ancient of days, the Lord God, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And on that day, the day when the Son of Man was presented in all authority and power and honor, there would be a book. And that book would be opened. You know, when Jesus was with the disciples and they were discovering that there was power in the Holy Spirit, that there was power in following Jesus, 
that they'd actually cast out demons, as Brian so effectively talked about us a, a couple weeks ago. Jesus said, don't rejoice that you have authority over demons. Don't rejoice that you have authority over sickness. Don't rejoice that you have joy in your life. Rejoice. Rejoice that your name is written in this book. This book. So I must ask you, is your name written in the book of life? There is nothing more important There's no more important question. You can only get your name written in the book of life by saying along with Daniel, I've been made innocent in his sight, verse 22. So I say it again. Innocence before God comes through his forgiveness found only by trusting in Christ. Turn to him in faith. Press into faith. It's the only way to face the challenges of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we see how easy it is for us to just take the Bible and make it moral stories of rules and things to do good and miss the best that this is actually the story of great faith and a greater salvation. That it has come to us through the great work of Jesus on the cross. Oh God, I thank you that it's not up to us to earn our way into your favor. I thank you, Father, that simply by coming to you and True repentance. True repentance of sin and complete faith to give our lives totally in faith to you, Father God, that we have this salvation, that we are declared innocent in your sight. So, Father God, I do pray for a Daniel generation. (laughs) I do pray that we would dare to be Daniel in his faith in you, And that all the world, all the nations would know of your great glory. And that one day, one day, oh God, when we stand at that throne and see the glory of God fully revealed, when we hear the book called for and opened, we will rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.